When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello again, and welcome back again to Matt D'Elia is Confused for part two of our 4th of July extravaganza, in which we examine particularly American shit and how it's fucked up. And yeah, what a what a better way to celebrate. My first guest was Carl Tenenbaum. Uh, these episodes are in no particular order, so if you have something against Carl or something against uh, the legalization of drugs, you can skip over that episode and come right to this episode with my second, uh, but not secondary, guest. Uh, she is spectacular. She is wildly talented and an important voice. Her name is Catherine Stewart. Uh, she's a writer. She writes for the New York Times uh, from time to time and is the author of a couple books. One is called The Good News Club, and her recent book is called The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. Uh, so Catherine is a... This is something that I've dedicated quite a bit of time to on the podcast, that I've dedicated a lot of my time in my life to looking into the sort of religious right, how it shapes policy and politics and really sort of grabs hold of a small minority and really sort of has figured out a way to keep a stranglehold on so much of the country and the way it thinks and the culture wars and all that. Catherine is an expert on these matters and she has a brain, a mind full of insanely important shit on the subject. And I was really excited to be able to talk to her. Uh, she's a great writer. Uh, she's very lucid when she talks about this stuff. And I truly think that this stuff is as important as, as anything right now, especially coming up on an election. Um, yeah, I love talking to Catherine. Uh, it seemed fitting to post this one as well on the 4th of July, considering how much it really uh, provides a snapshot of our country now. Uh, yeah, okay. I hope you guys enjoy my conversation with Catherine as much as I enjoyed having it. Uh, pick up the book, uh, The Power Worshippers, if you are interested. And if you listen to this, I believe you will be. So, okay, here is my conversation with Catherine Stewart. Okay. Catherine Stewart, thank you so much for joining. Matt Delia is confused. Uh, there's so much to talk about uh, with you. This is an area, your areas of expertise very much align with my interests, but also something I get into a lot on the show. Uh, you've written a few books, uh, articles, uh, books, The Good News Club, The Power Worshippers is your newest book. Uh, all of what you write, I find deeply fascinating and deeply important. I, I actually, I, I, I've as I've alluded to, I, I, I've read so much about this kind of stuff, but your writing I find to be particularly uh, vast and, and knowledgeable, and, and you go kind of a bit deeper than I think even most do who, who, who write about this. So, so I'm very happy to have you on the show, so, so oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, your kind words. I've been writing about this movement, Matt, for over a decade, and um, you know, the it's it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it's a kind of a big picture, and it's it's very difficult to kind of um, understand what you're seeing unless you have a kind of knowledge about how the movement actually works. It's true, and I actually uh, reading your work, um, I, I that seems the 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 difficulty in accessing even the roots of it or what the real agenda is, it almost seems like one of the more insidious parts of what the whole operation is doing. And, and I think that, that you kind of 
underscore that a lot in your book, the, the sort of the layers uh, that sort of obscure or obfuscate exactly what's going on that, that, that okay. uh, a lot of these organizations and groups are about. I'm, I'm curious if, I think what I would love to do is frame sort of your entry into this as a subject in general before we even fully dive in. So if you don't mind, can you kind of tell us how you came to this? Uh, because I think that's an important part of the story as well. Yeah, absolutely. I started uh, researching the religious right about uh, you know, over 10 years ago. I was living in Santa Barbara, California. I had two kids, a baby and a first grader, and I learned that something called a good news club was coming to our daughter's public elementary school. The program promised to teach Bible study from a non-denominational standpoint. I was really naive at the time. I thought non-denominational meant non-sectarian. And look, I'm a big free speech proponent. And I also think that you can teach about the Bible, even in public schools from a non-sectarian standpoint as literature or history. I actually took a Bible course when I was in high school and found it really fascinating and wonderful. But, you know, this was coming to a public elementary school. And I started to hear about other good news clubs that had been coming to other public elementary schools in our community. And I was hearing about how kids attending the clubs were targeting their non-Christian peers for what I could only describe as faith-based bullying and bigotry. Mm. They'd say, you don't believe in Jesus, so you're going to go to hell. Or they'd say, you know, kids would come home and say, mommy, we're going to go to hell because we don't go to the right kind of church. I mean, that was kind of astonishing because there are a lot of religious parents who thought, oh, you know, what a convenient setting to give my kids some religious education. And the mm-hmm. kids would come home and say, well, we're not the right kind of Christians, you know, especially um, children from Catholic families or children from uh, progressive Christian or moderate Christian denominations or mains, um, mainline. So I started to kind of dig a little bit deeper and I thought, you know, who are the Good News Club uh, leader? Oh, and here's the thing that really got me. Kids attending the club would say, I know it's true because they, they taught it to me in school mm-hmm. and they don't teach things in school that aren't true. Cause you know, we're talking about kids who are like five, six and seven year, years old. They right. don't have the ability to distinguish between the activity in their school and what's sponsored by the school. So I sort of started asking questions like who are the good news club leaders and what do they really believe in? Why do they insist on being in the public schools? And, you know, I discovered that there are thousands of these clubs operating in elementary schools, targeting children too young to read all across the nation. And that was just astonishing to me. So I, I discovered that they were just sort of, this is just part of a much larger attack on public education by the religious right. And the attack on public ed is just part of a larger attack on America's modern uh, constitutional democracy. Right. And as far as the actual, Good news clubs, because this was something I actually didn't know about until I read your work. And as you say, you didn't know about it until your kids actually were being su- possibly subjected to it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what is, I mean, how, how, how far back does this go specifically in terms of the good news clubs, not in terms of the larger movement, but this seems like something that most people should know about this idea of, a particular strain of Christianity coming into specifically schools. Right, public elementary schools, not high schools, not middle schools. I mean, they really focus on K to five or K to six. So the organization um, is, the Good News Clubs are sponsored by an organization called the Child Evangelism Fellowship. They're um, founded in Warrington, Missouri um, in 1937. So they've been around in America for many years, um, but they off, um, operated as other groups do in churches and homes. And sometimes they would set up clubs in po- private par- in, in parks, you know, public spaces like that. Um, and any of the uh, number of places that were all free to practice our faith, if any, but they really didn't operate in public schools in significant numbers until they won a 2001 Supreme Court decision called Good News Club versus Milford Central School. I think it was a terrible decision, wrongfully decided. I could um, spend the entire hour just talking about that, and I'll spare you. (laughs) But um, uh, just suffice it to say that the club that they uh, ran the case on went into the 12th grade. Now, I think um, there's really a a developmental difference between 
a club operating in a public high school and one off operating in a public elementary school that's led by adults and that's confusing little kids into thinking that their school sponsors a particular form of religion. I mean, I have kids. Anyone who's had kids knows that little kids, you know, uh, can't make that distinction. My, my kids believed in the tooth fairy right. <laughs> and yeah. they would have done anything for a cupcake. Right. So, um, so it was really after that 2001 decision that Good News Club started entering the public school in large numbers. Yeah, I mean, you talk about kids and, and their susceptibility to stuff like this. I was raised Catholic, and I, the thing, and I'm, my family was very loosely Catholic. I think we only went through the confirmation process, really, me and my brother, because of, uh, they were raised that way. It was more of like a traditional thing, and it wasn't a very Catholic household, but as a kid, just going through to any kind of church, anything, the thing that stuck with me was my fear of the things that they were saying. And I think the fear that it can instill in a kid is really deeply profound. And the thing that really is what sticks. And I think that is, I'm assuming really the point, whether they like to admit it or not, the reason why they'd like to be present from that early on is because it'll scare the shit out of you when you're that young. And, That's true. They, yeah. they call it the 414 window. In fact, there's, um, they, you know, I went to the national convention of the child evangelism fellowship, uh, with a couple, I believe it was like a couple, I mean, hundreds of good news club teachers and leadership, uh, from around the country. And they called public schools, their mission field, and they called children the harvest. And so not only do they want to get kids when they're little, because they know that's when, you know, they, they can make the, the greatest change. They, they want to be in the public schools themselves because it associates the, their religion with the authority of government, with the authority of the state, yeah. you know, the authority of the school and the state. So it sort of even hits home that fact even harder. But, you know, when you're talking about kids, they would say, you know, if you want to change the entire, like one of the speakers was named uh, Matt Staver. He's the founder and uh, uh, president, co-founder and president of Liberty Council, along with his wife, Anita. It's one of the legal advocacy groups of the religious right. And I remember him saying something like, you know, those kids ages five to 12, they're the most strategic age group that we have. He actually called them strategic machinery. Wow. And then, you know, he and when he was talking about public elementary schools, he said, you know, knock down all doors, all barriers to all 65,000 public elementary schools and take the gospel to this open mission field now, not later, now. I mean, they really are focused on public schools, not because they don't have anywhere else to practice their faith. They do. Right. In fact, even in our community, the evangelical church next door to the school offered the Good News Club leaders free and better space. Um, and they declined. They were insisting on being in the public school and they want to be there because they want to confuse little kids. You know, they know very well that little kids, you know, can't make that distinction between the authority of school and the authority of uh, what, what's taught inside the school. Yeah. I mean, that, that just in reading uh, what you've written about that, that fact, what you just said, the fact that there was, uh, they had the option to do this at uh, oh. House of Worship for evangelicals, and they specifically chose and wanted to not do it there is, is oh, telling. It, 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 it's even better. It's a group of evangelical moms at the school. This is the Cold Spring School in um, Santa Barbara. Uh, a group of evangelical moms got together, and they met with those Good News Club leaders, and they said, we really, we are also Christians. We we too believe in the Great Commission, but you're just not right for our school because we had this very sweet school that was very diverse in terms of faith. I mean, Christianity is an incredibly diverse religion. Yeah. There were, you know, um, representatives from uh, Episcopalian families, Methodist families, uh, Catholic families, Jewish families, uh, some a few Muslim families, something called Vedanta because this is Southern California, mm -hmm. some kind of like all this kind of interesting stuff at our school. I mean, America is irreducibly pluralistic. Yeah. And if our public schools are going to function effectively in a society as diverse as ours, we really should set aside our religious agendas um, in public education, come together in support of our children yeah. and, and their education. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the, and it is, as you point out, it is worth pointing out that this is not every 
Christian, and it's certainly not even every evangelical Christian. This is a a minority within a minority. That's absolutely true. And they punch. Here's the thing: they punch above their political weight because they are so coherent and organized. They've invested for decades in all of the tools of modern campaign infrastructure, data uh, initiatives, media messaging. Uh, they have a really tremendous get out the vote machine. So in the past 10 years, as I've been researching this movement, I've gone to a lot of um, right-wing conferences and strategy meetings uh, and gatherings where they're not just speaking to the general public, they're speaking to one another. Mm-hmm. And I remember one of them, Ralph Reed, who's the head of the uh, Faith and Freedom Coalition. He's one of the movement leaders, very savvy political guy. He said, pay no attention to the polls. They don't matter. Our number is in decline. All that matters is who turns out on election day. And um, so that's how they win elections, not yeah. by being you know, a representative of a major- ma- majority of this country, or certainly not a majority of Christians. I think the majority of American Christians actually reject the politics of division and conquest this movement represents. Yeah, and and the movement itself, uh, you write a little bit about how there's no real head. It's more of a, a, a it, and I find that to be sort of troubling in a unique way because it, you usually, or not usually, but it's it's sort of easier to identify a problem when there's a particular head of the movement and, right. and 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 there really isn't with this uh but but so that being said how does it have such a unified uh approach and how do these sort of various groups that are not necessarily linked by any sort of leader or even head group how, how do they operate in concert and and how are they so effective i know this is a massive question but really just specifically about how how is this a movement without a leader or head head of it. Yeah, there's so much to talk about here. I mean, it, there are a, a sort of a large collection of leaders, but the most important components of the movement are really the policy organizations, the networking groups, the media and legislative initiatives, the legal and data organizations, and the like. And the, I think it's really helpful, actually, in distinguishing between the leaders and the followers of the movement. So. For the leaders, the heads of those different groups, all you know, which I lay out in my in my book, mm-hmm. Power Worshippers, they're when only so you know so-called Christians in their approved versions of the religion are in charge of all major areas of government and society when they answer to their spiritual guides. But they're also looking for a time when they can rely on the government for a, a couple of things. Number one, a constant flow of taxpayer money. Mm-hmm. That's like a huge. That's a lot of what they mean when they talk about religious freedom is really they want uh, taxpayers to fund them. Mm-hmm. And then also policies that privilege, privilege their religion. They're really looking to consolidate their power. And But when we're talking about the followers, I think we're talking about a really wide range of people with very different interests, backgrounds, and ideas. A lot of them would not consider themselves Christian nationalists like if they really thought about it. But they, like when they're voting for politicians that promise to end abortion or promise to reunite church and state, they're, or, or insist that America is a so-called Christian nation, something they also hear. What they are is they're voting identity in a way. They're making a statement about who they are and what they value in themselves. So they are lending support to the movement, but I think a lot of them would be really surprised to learn all of the policy proposals, all of the details of the policies that their leaders are supporting. And a lot of it has to do, frankly, with economic policy. Mm. I mean, the Christian right has long had an alliance with the anti-government, like libertarian wing of the um, Republican Party. So, you know, it's really funny. There (laughs) is a movement that claims to stand for the integrity of the family and yet they're endorsing economic policies that have led to the sort of raging inequality that make it so hard for families to succeed today. Yeah, yeah, just another thing to add to the list of hypocrisies. It's, it's really interesting, and it makes you wonder if it's, if it's actually blind hypocrisy or just sort of bald-faced cynicism, you know, and I think that that is, again, one of the 
ultimate questions that it's is obfuscated by so much of what they do. It's like you, it's hard to when you really sit down and look at all of these things. It's a litany of things that make you scratch your head and wonder how the people who this is their text that they their foundational text that they live by preaches so many things that 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 go, run counter to what how they operate and what they advocate for in the world today it's hard to wrap as a non-believer as anyone who believes in secular society uh any secularist it, it, it it's it's hard to really even contend with and it's hard to understand even on that elemental simple basic level I know it's really hard. I mean, it's hard to speculate about the interior yeah. minds of a, a group of individuals. Sometimes you look and you think, are they just being cynical? Are they in it for the power? Are they true believers? Um, and I think it's sort of all of the above. Yeah. Uh, often, um, I don't necessarily see um, the sort of drive for power and funds, and this idea that you know they really believe in what they're doing is always mutually exclusive. I mean, I'm inclined to think that for a lot of the leaders of the religious right, um, many do believe that they have a direct line to God, but I also think that many movement leaders identify their power and and money as evidence of divine favor. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, you're probably right. Uh, so this, this idea of religious nationalism, Christian nationalism, specifically as it pertains to America, um, what can you actually can you define that because this is something that i think about a lot and spend a lot of time on just this this idea of this strange uh perception that christianity and america are tied at the hip and that 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 specifically you know when you look at a lot of what the founding fathers intended it was actually not that it was specifically to 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 not tether any one specific belief system to this idea of America. So this idea of Christian nationalism in America is is profoundly confusing to me. And I would like if you could define it and also sort of talk about maybe why how that spun to make it seem like, as you say, you know, we are an inherently pluralistic society here in America. These people would certainly argue that we are not that we are founded as a Christian nation and that was how it was intended. And the idea of America was specifically Christian. What is this idea and where, where are the, the, the roots of that, I guess? That's right. Well, so Christian nationalism involves the claim that the foundation of legitimate government in the United States Mm -hmm. is bound up with a reactionary understanding of a particular religion. Mm -hmm. So it's an anti-democratic political ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, it says that the United States is basically founded on the Bible. It's also a device for mobilizing people to vote for hyper-conservative political candidates. Right. Um, you know, a device for capturing their votes and for concentrating power in the hands of this new elite. So it's a form of identity politics in that it ties the idea of America to specific cultural and religious identities. Um, I, I use the term religious nationalism in the subtitle yeah. of my book, The Power Worshippers. I say um, inside the dangerous rise of religious nationalism to make clear its similarities with other forms of religious nationalism around mm. the world. So when we look at leaders like Putin in Russia or Orban in Hungary or Duda in, um, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, in Poland mm-hmm. or Erdogan in Turkey, or political leaders in places like Iran, like when they bind themselves tightly to religious hyper-conservatives in their countries in order to consolidate a more authoritarian form of political power, we rightly recognize that as a form of religious nationalism. And that's what we're seeing with Trump's alliances with our own religious hyper-conservatives. It is interesting. I, I think a lot of Americans look and scratch their head at how the religious right has tethered itself to Trump or, or aligned itself so sort of quickly with Trump and Trump has become this sort of figurehead of the religious right, which is on its face is complete nonsense to anyone who who has an objective mind about it, because as on his on its face, he is the least religious seeming person you could even conjure, let alone point to in reality. Um, but But as you point out, I I I think that this is sort of he's just the um, the the ultimately American manifestation of what you're describing 
despotism, authoritarianism marrying itself to far-right religious groups around the world and historically. You know, he's just a particularly American strain with his bombast and his wealth and his and his celebrity it but this is not a uniquely american thing and i and i and i and and not a uniquely now thing and i think that is important to point out uh this is something that is a trend this is not specific to it is specific to here and now because it's happening but this is not unique per se that's true i mean i think authoritarian movements they always run identity campaigns that's what trump is doing when he says like when they come from me i they're coming for me and i am fighting for you like i i get email uh, every couple of days from like the family research council one of the leading uh advocacy groups of the religious right and policy groups and they say you know friends they're always trying to raise small dollar donations mm-hmm. from their folks so they send us these mailings and they say friend when they attack an attack on trump is an attack on you but, you know, right-wing authoritarians always run these identity campaigns. There's like a we that's under threat yeah. and there's a they that they hate. And religion tends to play a vital role in making the difference. I mean, if you look at um, people, other religious nationalist leaders over history from like Franco in Spain or Salazar in Portugal, these right-wing strongmen have long uh, relied on alliances with these conservative religious movements in order to sustain their strict regimes. And that's what Trump's doing. So they're, they're not just like a lot of people have, you know, think the support for Trump is just transactional. Mm-hmm. They think he's going to enact, enact economic policies favorable to sort of the far right, you know, of the, you know, economic wing of the Republican Party. And that's certainly true. And they think he's going to appoint justices favorable to their positions in the so-called culture wars. And that's definitely true. I mean, to date, Trump has put his stamp on, I think it's a hundred and it's actually had about, I think it's 168 justices confirmed. If we're talking SCOTUS and also the circuits and um, federal, but it's more than that. I mean, they are comparing him to often to biblical kings like King Cyrus, yeah. an imperfect ruler to whom God chose to enact his will. I remember when Paul White said, it's God that raises up a king? I mean, yeah. the thing about kings is they don't have to obey the rules. They're not, they are the law unto themselves. They're not kings of democracies. Yeah. <laughs> They're kings of a different kind of uh, political order. Yeah, and also this language even, king, the king of kings and even just the adversarial nature of so many of the stories in the bible it it all the root of it is is sort of again you talk about you know as as children we, we anyone who's raised christian in any way the text that you lean on is the bible and everything in that text uses language that sort of is sort of co-opted now in a lot of these different ways even if it's not direct language it is about us versus them though so much of it and persecution and overcoming and all of those kinds of things and i i i i taking the long view in such a way i think is is informative and and sort of eye-opening and actually speaking of long view the the republican party then you talk about this in the power worshippers i'm I didn't I actually didn't know the extent to which the Republican Party has not always been the thing that it is now. I mean, not that sounds like a broad statement. Obviously, I know things change and come and go. And the South was used to be Democratic, and now it's obviously very Republican. But specifically in terms of the culture war thing, and as you point out, which I definitely want to get into, specifically with abortion. But even just looking at abortion, the 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 shift. That the Republican Party has undertaken uh, since Goldwater and his and, and and can you talk to us a, a little bit about that because I, I don't I don't think this is something that's widely understood I don't think people do fully understand that to be a Republican didn't always mean that you had to go down a checklist of things starting with you had to be pro life Oh, that's absolutely true. It's really kind of astonishing. Let's, when Roe versus Wade was passed. The Southern Baptist Convention actually hailed the decision. They hailed it as a sensible middle ground. Most Republican Protestants at the time supported liberalization of abortion law. They thought it sort of fit in accordance with their idea of middle-class Protestant values. It was considered to be um, more of a Catholic issue at the time. Mm-hmm. But as a Catholic issue, it didn't divide Republicans from Democrats and was often situated 
within um, a sort of a larger context of care for the poor and the undefended, or the least of these. Um, but, you know, let's remember, Reagan uh, passed the most liberal abortion law in the country in 1967. Barry Goldwater, who was this conservative hero, supported abortion law liberalization, at least early in his career. His wife, Peggy, this is like one of my favorite little details in the book. She was a co-founder of Planned Parenthood in Arizona. I mean, can you imagine the wife of a or, or spouse of a Republican politician getting involved actively in reproductive justice today? That would not happen. No. It just wouldn't be possible. Um so, you know, even other religious leaders, uh, Jerry Falwell had some kind of um, uh, quote where he said, I believe in pan pa Planned Parenthood. This is, but then what happened over time was that pro-choice voices were purged from the Republican Party um, and they were purged for political purposes. So there was a group of folks, and this is an, sort of an incident that just shows you how a very small but determined group of people can change the world. Mm -hmm. So there's a group of leaders, uh, including uh, Richard Vigri, um, Paul Weirich, uh, Phyllis Schlafly was involved. There were folks like uh, Jerry Falwell involved, Howard Phillips, and a number of others. Um, Weirich took a really uh, important role. They were really, they were hyped, sort of conservative. They really were unhappy with the direction of the Republican Party at the time. They thought it had become too soft on communism. And they uh, were upset about a lot of other developments in American life. They were really upset about the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement. Um, they uh, were concerned that schools were um, becoming, uh, you know, uh, losing. Uh, you know, they were upset about school prayer decisions and things like that. Uh, and they they just really wanted to reignite a kind of hyper conservative counter-revolution, they began to meet and gather and have discussions. And there's this fascinating episode where they went down and basically, uh, you know, went down a laundry list of issues that they thought might unite their movement. And we're talking like 1980s or so. This is seven years after the passage of Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. So abortion was not the first issue on the list. They were the thing that really, you know, anim animated their them the most was that um, racially segregated schools um, were starting to be looked at askance by the IRS. They were saying, why are we giving you tax privileges when you're segregating students by race? Right. And a lot of the pastors, like hyper-conservative pastors, were involved with these schools. Like Bob Jones was, um, you know, Bob Jones uh, University was one, and um, other schools were sort of in, in their sights. But they knew that, like, Defend the tax status of racist academies was not going to be a really appealing, <laughs> broadly appealing rallying cry for their movement. So they looked at, you know, the ERA and they looked at some other issues. But when they got to the issue of abortion, it was almost like a light bulb went off. And they were like, huh, that could really work. So over time, what they did is, you know, they it took a while and took quite a lot of effort. But they they purged those pro-choice voices from the Republican Party and um, the pro-life religion we see today, it's almost like a, you know, they've reduced all of religion to this ethos of whether or not you're so for quote-unquote life. Yeah. It's like a new pro-life religion that was created for political purposes. And why, I mean, I know there's no actual concrete absolute answer, but why, why did they settle on that specifically? And moreover, why has that been so effective? It's really effective because if you can get people to vote on a single life or death binary issue, you can control their vote. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've been going to these right wing conferences. I'll just where they just hammer home that this is the most important issue. I'll just give you a couple of examples at the last values voters uh, summit that I attended. It's a gathering of right wing activists. The person who stood up on stage to sort of introduce the whole gathering head of the Family Research Council, Tony Perkins, he gets up on stage and as a sort of like a gimmick, a bunch of like some some young women roll these massive cribs on the stage behind him, all filled with baby hats. And basically it's this sort of stunt that's signaling life or, you know, abortion is the number one issue of our time. It's the thing that is so important. So, you know, I've, uh, another thing the movement does to get all the sort of... Um, 
right-wing or conservative-leaning pastors on the same page when it comes to turning out their congregations to vote is they give them these tools and messaging tips and they and these trainings. There's an organ, uh, Family Research Council has an organization called Watchmen on the Wall. Mm. They've got tens of tens of thousands of affiliated pastors, and they go to these gatherings, particularly in swing districts, in advance of elections. And I've gone to these events, and speakers will stand up and say, you know, um, you know, we're beginning to move back to a nation that respects the sanctity of life. This is like the first thing that they'll say. Yeah, I've even been to one where. Uh, for a bunch of Latino pastors in California where a speaker effectively said, you know, when you're talking to congregations about uh, economic issues, what's more important than minimum wage or life? Yeah. I mean, if you put it that way, like what's, what's worth more, a few extra dollars or life itself. These are like leading ways of, you know, these, it makes it very clear what so-called biblical values are and the way you're, these pastors are supposed to turn out their con- congregations to vote. So it's it's become a very effective tool for them. I would say that there are three big issues that they use. Abortion um, has been uh, typically the loudest. Um, LGBT uh, equality and rights and issues around that has been a huge issue. They were really adamant about talking about same-sex marriage, and they, they lost out on that issue. Then a few years ago, it was like transgender bathrooms, and now they choose other things. Um, but they also use the term religious liberty a lot mm. um, in order as a way of sort of demanding taxpayer funding and as well as the right to discriminate against people that uh, don't uh, you know uh, to whom they disapprove or things like that. Something I find really interesting about the culture war, which you're sort of outlining when you when we're talking about you know uh, them being pro-life um, and trans bathroom stuff. It, it, I'm always struck with how much these people seem to care about things that it seems like they just would essentially never affect them in their day-to-day life or possibly in their life at all. So when I think about a lot of these people, I picture them somewhere in the South, generally speaking. And these, the, the, I, I would imagine that in their immediate purview, they're not seeing this stuff on a day-to-day basis or interacting with it really at all besides maybe their news intake or their weekly you know email that they're listing that they're on from their church or whatever advocacy group that they're aligned with i'm fascinated with the fact that so many people are swayed their vote is swayed by issues that actually don't really affect them and it's all this, this like this mind thing. It's it's just the ideology of it. That the fact that that it, it they're being told it runs counter to their belief, their religious beliefs. But in reality, it affects these people so little, and and they're being driven to vote on on massively important factors. But but they're not voting on those factors. They're voting for these things that sort of lead the charge. But they're just cloaking so many other things that actually do affect policy and even affect their daily lives. And yet they're voting based on how they feel about things like abortion. It, it, it seems like the most successful bait and switch campaign, because it's really just about these. This is why you must vote for X candidate, Donald Trump or anybody down ballot because he's pro-life. But these things really generally aren't affecting people on a day-to-day basis. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I, I think that you're absolutely right about, um, uh, you know, in, in the sense that, like, of course, reproductive issues affect all American women and families. Of course. Um, but, you know, people have often said, well, if you don't approve of abortion, don't have one. Um, you're free to, you know, choose to carry your baby to term if that's what you want right. to do, et cetera. But it's really about creating a sort of narrative of persecution. I mean, I think that, you know, there are a lot of women within that sort of pro-life movement mm-hmm. who have had abortion themselves, and they don't even see this necessarily as um, hypocrisy. You wow. know, they've chosen this for themselves, and then they can feel really terrible about it, and there's a place for them to sort of do their penance and feel terrible and, but, you know, get resolution. And it's all about creating that sense of persecution. And I think this sort of sham narrative, a lot of, and the whole issue of, you know, 
and transgender people using the bathroom of their, you know, uh, choosing is yeah. of course, it, it's not really a, an issue that is affecting people right. in a substantial way, you know, but it's all about creating this sense of identity, the us versus them, the insider versus the outsider, the pure or the unpure, you know, impure. Yeah. And that, you know, I think the, the movement conceives of itself, believe it or not, as a persecuted minority, even as it's sort of disproportionately represented in our laws and, you know, in, in our uh, in our government, certainly today. Um, and that sham narrative of persecution is too valuable in mobilizing the base to set aside just because it's obviously a fable. It's right. used by leaders of the movement to solidify their power. Um, and, uh, and, and that's, that's what it's all about. It's all about creating this sense of persecution that that brings them together. And you know, what do they need to do? They need to identify a scapegoat. Yeah. And so they'll they'll find, you know, the scapegoat moves from one target to the next. But you know, it's a abortionist, I've heard the radical feminists, LGBT totalitarians, they have all kinds of different yeah. uh, folks that they like to to blame for, you know, for in order to consolidate their their movement and consolidate their vote and it, even this sort of adversarial enemy making thing you even hear it from obviously we hear it from donald trump but we even hear it from bill barr and he's even using just secularism in general as the boogeyman which i i i remember i heard that i think it was just some speech maybe at notre dame or i don't remember exactly where it was, it was but, notre dame. Yeah. yeah you're right about that yeah and he's just talking so openly about how secularism has led to the destruction of our society and I, I i was alone while watching it but i did the thing where you like look around like are you hearing this because it was it's the kind of thing that you almost it's too impossible to believe and yet you're seeing it so you have to believe it and this flagrant open sort of anti-secularism thing and even, as you say scapegoat the making secularism the scapegoat is it, it, it genuinely, it, it, I, I shouldn't be saying this because nothing should surprise me, but that really did surprise me to hear him so openly say that. It's true. I mean, you're right. It, he was speaking at Notre Dame law, uh, law School, I believe, and he blamed secularists for um, ransacking everything that is holy and good in our society, essentially. Um, but, you know, it also um, it makes clear why he has directed the Justice Department on matters concerning the First Amendment clause uh, in a particular way. So, for instance, he has tried to uh, defend the funding of religious schools, um, overturn uh, bans on religious schools for obtaining tax taxpayer funds to promote their own sect uh, sectarian doctrines. He um, is also defending the sort of uh, executive uh power. He's got this sort of theory of the executive. I mean, it's, it's really astonishing. He's kind of almost like, ex, you know, the way he's directing the Justice Department, he uh, appears to be uh, trying to exempt uh, Trump from any rule of law. Yeah, It's a sort of idea, like within this ideological framework, the ends justifies the means. I mean, if, if you are persuaded that you're in a an existential battle between absolute good and absolute evil, then um, any, you know, uh, backroom deals or breaking of the rules, um, every conceivable compromise with principles is justified, yeah. every ethical breach. And this is sort of how a lot of the movement leaders see Trump. And, you know, it just hits home the fact that this is an anti-democratic movement doesn't believe in pluralism or equality or necessarily the rule of law as yeah. America's founders intended it. Um, they would be happy with someone like Trump who, you know, flagrantly violates um, uh, every norm and, and, uh, and, and I mean, I don't know where to begin with yeah. his transparently amoral character <laughs> if he delivers to them the wins that they want, you know, in the courts in the you know in government in and 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 hands power over to them and they they're them knowing that they're a minority and knowing that they're sort of creating this avenue for absolute power sort of this king making thing that bar is basically just implementing 
uh, or at least sort of paving the way for. Uh, is there any talk? I mean, I'm assuming the answer is no, because it's so flagrant. It seems to be unaware of potential pitfalls of what they're doing, potentially even to themselves. But do, is there any sort of acknowledgement within these groups that if they're paving the way for absolute power, executive power on, on religious matters, especially that doesn't that mean that if there's an elected president that disagrees with them, that then they're really fucked basically. Like it seems to be sort of in a way, this sort of strangely ignorant thing where they're they they know they're the minority. They're fighting against that. And, and, and that yet they're opening up the power for the per the single person in charge to be able to do what they want the the most so assuming that someone who isn't christian eventually obviously one day will be president and so that seems to be i mean the whole point of having there be this balance is that so there is no king you know there the whole if you mm -hmm. look at the original founding articles of the entire country the whole thing is that there shall never be a king because that's what they were running from that's what they hated so much rightly mm -hmm. and now they're sort of in a weird, obfuscated, screwed up backwards way, just creating a, a, another route for there to be a version of a king, just a modern version. Yeah, but that, you know, Biden uh, wins the election that if he, like the day he puts a tan suit and, yeah. and, and goes golfing, you know, they'll be howling forever. Yeah, it's so true. Know? Yeah. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah. There's just, it seems to be, there's so, no awareness of the, of uh, how much this could even harm them moving forward. This kind I, of rhetoric. I think it's, I, I think it's like conquest. I think it's yeah. by any means necessary. I really do. Yeah. And you know, I, that's, I, I, it's amazing. Like, you know, just the, the sort of violation of the rules doesn't seem to look, the violation of principle doesn't seem to um, upset them one bit. I remember one of the conferences I attended hearing Ralph Reed talk about what he called the, Republican reapportionment advantage. He was talking about gerrymandering. Mm -hmm. And he said, if um, he said, thanks to the Republican reapportionment advantage, <laughs> if, uh, if Democrats are up by one to 3%, we win, or maybe one to 4%, if we win, if it's five to 7%, it's a jump ball. And yeah. if they're up eight to 10%, uh, we lose. And he was basically talking about how they game the system over time um, and it really gets at something that I think is so important that um, we all understand is that the movement is really, uh, they've always been playing the long game. Yeah. It, it's not like they did this one trick and that's how they got into power with Trump. They've invested in, you know, all the tools of modern political campaigns. They, you know, they, yes, of course they march at the March for Life, but they, what they really do is they engage with this, with this system in order to game the system and win the system. And that's why sort of efforts to defend voting rights, I think right now are absolutely so important. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, mean, I yeah. think, I think in a country where, you know, people assume that in a, a country like the United States, uh, the majority rules, it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, 40 to 50% of Americans don't turn out to vote and an additional number have their votes essentially stolen from them through race-based gerrymandering and voter suppression, um, you don't need majorities to win an election. You just need a really dedicated and coherent uh, minority that knows when to unite when necessary. But that does go both ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, speaking of this gerrymandering and uh, these kinds of things, it, it makes me think of another element of all of this, which you do touch on quite a bit, and I want to make sure we talk about it a little bit as well, which is this implicit, I believe that's the word you use, this implicit uh, idea of how whiteness is sort of dovetails with all of this, how race sort of is, is, is almost this implied aspect of this entire movement. And, you know, gerrymandering plays into that, but I'm curious as to how that sort of uh, trick is 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 sort of enacted yeah i i mean the religious right is not really separate from race and racism no matter how hard its leaders try to do that right um 
you know, the heads of the religious right policy groups and their affiliated organizations, I'm thinking about like the Family Research Council specifically, they're often trying to reach out to pastors of color in order to capture a subsection of voters of color. And they make a special effort, for instance, with conservative Latino voters of faith in certain swing districts. Yeah. But the fact remains that for substantial numbers of white supporters of the movement, which is the vast majority of the movement, the idea of religious heritage is very closely bound up with ideas of racial heritage and racial difference. And, you know, of course, they, they use a kind of often, uh, I mean, Trump would not have won without appealing to the racism, of, you know, really obvious ways yeah. of many of his supporters. And I think these um, leaders often also paper over the ways in which um, hyper-conservative religion and racism reinforce one another. So it was really interesting to watch this sort of reaction to the Black Lives Matter movement and then see some of the leaders in the movement, you know, trying to get involved. I mean, some leaders were, you know, Trump did his ridiculous Bible op and some <laughs> of the leaders like like Tony uh, Jeffress and, and Tony Perkins sort of praised the decision. But others tried to start having like, we're going to have a sort of discussion about racism. Um, and, you know, they bring out the sort of, you know, black pastors that they could find or Latino right. pastors to get involved in these conversations. But, you know, when they were decrying racism, they'd often cast it as a sin problem exclusively. Mm -hmm. And they'd say, you know, the only solution to sin is the liberty of the gospel. So there was this unwillingness to acknowledge or take on the issue of structural racism. Mm -hmm. um, they continue to support these hyper-conservative political candidates who've, whose policies intensify economic inequality that dovetails very um, closely with racial inequality. Um, and they are also, of course, driving support for a political party that persists in race-based gerrymandering and voter suppression, these other dirty tricks that we've seen recently in Kentucky and Atlanta. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, it's really, it's interesting to, to say the least and disturbing as well to just see the kind of, you know, we call it dog whistling, but it, it, it's, it's just so blatant now in That's so many ways. Warning. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's just, it's just, it, to call it that is almost doing it a disservice, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just very flagrant and blatant and, uh, and, and in such a modern, diverse world, it's hard to, I think, for a lot of people to really encounter the or 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 face the full weight of that. You know, I think it's so much. So much of what these people who do vote Republican are able to do is look the other way because they're not outright being racist. Let's say with their absoluteness, with like the cut and dried absolute. These people are racist, and it provides them with an ability to sort of look the other way but it really to any objective observer it's just so flagrant and 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 i think it's hard for someone who doesn't align with those kind of ideas ideologies uh to really understand because it seems so obvious you know yeah you know it's it's interesting there was a moment even like 10 years ago when i first went to the national convention of the child evangelism fellowship there was um a speaker at the event who was black and he was um, he was one of the keynote speakers and he his name was Charles Ware and I'm gonna I don't have his book in front of me but I remember he wrote this book um, uh, calling like evolution racist he said something like the Darwinian the racist roots of Darwinian evolution or something like that and he basically talked about how um, you know he was there it it seemed like you know they wanted to have the you know speaker who offers the appearance of diversity to right. this movement. Proves that they're not um, racist, right, yeah. Right, a little bit, there seemed a little bit that, but then he, in his book, I read his book, where he basically, you know, engaged in the most, like, despicable homophobic language, mm. the kind of, you know, homophobic language that was reminded of this type of um, uh, scapegoating that I've seen as a prelude to various types of genocides. It yeah. was really alarming in his book. And then I also said, read something where he said, um, a marriage between a Christian and a non-Christian, and he had some way of framing the non-Christian, like a child uh, dead. I mean, there was some awful way that he cast it. He said, should be condemned. 
Oh, and he wow. said, and it should be that should be considered an interracial marriage, and it is to be condemned. And I read that, and I thought, so. And th- these books were selling, you know, yeah. at the event. And I thought, this is a group that's putting its clubs in my kids' public school, yeah. and they invite a speaker who says that um, interfaith marriages are to be are should be called interracial and are to be condemned. And that was just shocking to me. Yeah. I mean. Um, uh, it's, it was the basically, you know, in his view, it's like the insider lines between insider and outsider are being policed as just as, as, as ferociously as ever. Um, and in his, you know, in his, the way he's casting them, it's no longer based on religion, uh, race. It's now based on sort of religion, right. but it's still dividing that world into the us versus the them, the pure, the versus the impure, and um, so, yeah, I think racism is still like a huge part of the movement, but there is a subsection that has tried to kind of shift the 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 terms of the of the right. you know shift those lines a little bit. Yeah, uh, just the last piece of this racist racism uh, question. I, I'm curious if there's because I I something I run into quite a bit is this. Uh, pr- this idea that Christians insist that Jesus was white and that's essentially that's, that's historically impossible. If Jesus existed at (laughs) at all, it's historically impossible that he or anyone else in that book was white. And I'm curious is, is this something that they even it's humorous to, to any outsider, but, but it, is it even a, is it even something that's, attempted to illustrate that that's even possible for these people or is it just it has to be true because we need it to be true and it's taken as gospel for the simple fact that it needs to fit the narrative so jesus was white no i don't even hear any discussion about that i mean i just think that um you know racism runs so deep in the movement i mean let's just think about the pro-slavery theologians who promoted the idea of America as an authentically Christian nation and used their understanding of the religion to actually defend slavery. You know, they, right. they sort of endorsed these hierarchies uh, of racial hierarchies because they said they were rooted in the Bible right. and they called abolitionists heretics and atheists. Um, so they, um, they weren't, they were assu- assuming, you know, asserting that these uh, racial, uh, you know, uh, hierarchies were you know they just weren't even thinking in, in that way either right it's just basically a kind of weaponization of religion for their purposes right yeah i mean it is an easy the bible is an easy book to weaponize there's so much violence i mean slavery is not it's sort of just it's an open fact of the world in the bible slavery is discussed mm-hmm. as if it's just any other old thing you know mm-hmm. uh, it, it's all just always evidence to me that <laughs> these people want to practice what they want to practice but the least they could do is get a new book um uh, but- <laughs> well it's true i mean there's so many uh, progressive christians who use the bible to um uh, underpin their conviction that uh, inequality that people should be treated equal that right. people should be regarded as human being first um and to argue for various types of uh justice i mean you can think about leaders like mlk jr who um often cast the bid for equality in religious language and right. religious terms i mean people have used the bible for so many sort of mutually contradictory purposes yeah. that it's almost like you have to like think well Perhaps the conviction in equality or the sort of endorsement of ideas of hierarchy, perhaps those two different interpretations, there's, you know, something else going on there. It's, they're not just looking at the Bible. There's, right. there's some other orientation that they have and they're, you know, interesting stuff. Yeah. Uh, before I let you go, we're coming up in an hour here. I do. Can you, this was something I actually didn't know about embarrassingly enough until coming upon your work, but Project Blitz seems like an important part of the equation, and even the name alone is scary, uh, especially scary in terms of how apt of a name it really is. So can you tell us a little bit about that, what they do, and how they're so effective? Sure. Project Blitz is a broad and ambitious legislative initiative that tries to flood, and they do it, they flood multiple state legislatures with coordinated 
simultaneous bills in hopes that they will eventually become law. And then the, mm, the discussion uh, about them will get sort of shifted to the right. I mean, there's literally a project playbook mm-hmm. and I write about it in my book. Um, it shows that the movement leaders have self-consciously embraced a strategy of advancing their goals through deception and indirection. So architects of the movement, uh, they had four leaders when they first started, but there are other organizations involved. They've divided the legislation that they're introduced. Like, are you aware? Let's take a step back. Do you know about the American Exchange, uh, Legislative Exchange Council or ALEC? Um, uh, it's a sort of, it's like a shop that crafts model legislation, which allows multiple legislators to actually adopt and promote bills and introduce them into their states without oh, right. having to research and write the bills themselves. So that's what Project Blitz does. They craft model legislation that various um, political leaders can use and get them all on the same page. And they've divided legislation into three categories according to level of difficulty of passage. And the first level is really about symbolic issues like um, putting in God we trust signs in public schools and in um, other government buildings. And in multiple states like Mississippi and Louisiana and Alabama, now prominently placed in God we trust signs are mandatory in every public school building and sometimes even in every public school classroom as a consequence of this Project Blitz um, legislation. But um, the path, that's just phase one. And it's, you know, basically intended to blur the line of separation of church and state just a little bit. But, but phase one only clears the way for level two, which is to introduce uh, conservative Christian, I, like Christian nationalist ideas more directly into schools and other government entities. And level three is to make room for uh, legalization of discrimination against those whose very actions or beings offend the sensibility of conservative Christians, the sort of license to discriminate bills. Yeah. Uh, and so the Blitz name, it really is, it's a, it's a, it's almost like just flooding the legislative system with stuff that they have to basically, f- it, as you point out, I think what's kind of interesting is that they, there's some stuff that they just know will never get through, but it's like they, yeah. there's such a, they're so persistent and persistence is almost is the point. You know, it's almost this war of attrition type of thing that um, you just keep flooding the system with these requests, legislative pushes, and it's just, it's endless. And it almost is like, well, at some point, some of them are going to go through, as you point out, in God We Trust is on schools all across the South in certain states. It's, It's almost just like you drown the system with this kind of shit and eventually exactly. you're going to hit a home run on a couple. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes like a kind of death by a thousand paper cuts. And when they first started the project blitz on the website, there were actually two recordings of audio calls with project blitz leaders. And I listened to them both. Mm. And one of the leaders at the time, uh, David Barton, I, he's a sort of Christian nationalist myth maker. I call him the where's Waldo of the <laughs> Christian nationalist movement. Cause he sits on the boards of so many of its legislative initiatives and key organizations. And he, on the audio call, he said something to the effect of like, you know, project, uh, phase one is just like, it's, it's like, it's like, um, he said, they'll drive the opposition crazy. It'll be like whack-a-mole. They'll divide their energy trying to pose these efforts, but it'll push the ball further down the court. You know, so he knew that phase one was really just there to clear the way for phase two, which is to um, insert more, you know, to introduce more dangerous legislation further designed to erode the already crumbling wall between separation of church and state. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's so interesting, this this separation of church and state uh, being uh, the assault on that separation, and especially in the name of some kind of almost originalist mentality, foundational mentality of America. And that was, that being the whole, it's the antithesis of what America was meant to be. The whole point of America was separating those things. It, It almost underscores the ultimate it's like the ultimate hypocrisy of it all really is this that they're trying to take down the 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 wall between church and state that the that the whole premise of america is built upon and I and, know. The, yet and they, they point to the, yeah yeah 
Go on. Yeah, I, they, I, I'm sorry. Go they, on. Yeah, they just point specifically to that as if it's evidence of what they're talking about, when in reality, it's the opposite. The founding fathers did not want what they want. And yet they're saying the, the, the direct, the exact opposite, really. I know. And they have all these ways to justify it. And they'll always say like this thing, like it's supposed to be a one directional wall. This is never intended as a one directional wall. This is ridiculous. But then they'll, you know, like the words of these, like the mid-century thinker, like Rusas John Rushduni, who, who's the one who first said something to the effect of like, you know, it's to keep government out of religion, not religion out of government. You know, right. I mean, Rush Juni was a defender of um, segregation, uh, uh, sort of, um, uh, he was, uh, he also d- described uh, America as a development of Christian feudalism. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was like the most anti-democratic thinker you can possibly imagine. He drew directly from the pro-slavery theologians, uh, admired them, and not only admired them and quoted them in his work, but he actually reprinted some of them uh, through his publishing house, Ross House Books. He's a, he's one of these thinkers that a lot of folks don't know about right now, but his his ideas have kind of proliferated through the movement. He's a founder of a uh, a, a movement, uh, uh, considered one of the founders of a movement called Christian Reconstructionism, right. whose ideas are now very widely promoted. And, and in some ways, uh, some instances, his words or concepts are actually promoted and you know echoed by a lot of the movement leaders today yeah it's it's very interesting to just go back and see the roots of these things and it's very illuminating to the the way that they're sort they sort of manifest now and the tentacles are everywhere and um it's just fascinating and and i really appreciate your work so much of it is so insightful and it's you could make a easily make a case that all this stuff is more important now than it, than it's ever been. There's so much on the line, uh, especially with an election coming up. It's just so, so, so uh, I cannot overstate the importance of what you do. And I want to thank you for it. Also, thank you for just coming on the show in general and giving us your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks. I'm so grateful to you for being so informed about the topic and for having me on and for having such a great conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. The, you know, the, it really, the votes really matter. And I think this is the, you know, there's so much on the line on the line of this election. I think the, the future of democracy is really what's on the line in November. So one thing the right does so well is they don't, you know, they unify when necessary. They, they, you know, overlook um, everything that they don't like in order to turn out, for, for larger purposes. And I just hope that folks will, who reject these, um, the politics of division and conquest that this movement represents will unify and turn out this uh, November as well. I mean, I could not agree more. That is the perfect way to wrap this up. Uh, Catherine Stewart, thank you so much. Everybody go out and buy, read, somehow listen to the audiobook. get your hands on the power worshipers. It's a great book. And uh, Catherine, I really appreciate your time and your work. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks. Have a great day. Yeah, you too.